0: Very esteemed individuals in our greater community of Detroit who are here to share with us some of their thoughts. We have Dawood Walid, who's the executive director of the Michigan Council on American Islamic Relations. Um, we have. <coughs> Diane Baird, who is the program director from Lutheran Social Services of Michigan, and we have Raquel Garcia-Anderson, who is the director of partnership and community outreach for Global Detroit. So, thank you all for joining us, and um, we're going to uh, ask each one of you to share your thoughts, and we will start with Na'ul Bavid at the far end, and work our, our way this way. work our way this way. Okay, work our way this way. This mic's not great. So, uh, without any further
1: ado, uh, ado Mr. Bavid. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure and honor to be here with you this evening on this very uh, important day. And in this very important time in our country in which the discussion of race, national origin, is a hot topic in the social political discourse. And people are using it as a political football and there are communities of color that are being treated like second-class citizens and being denied proper services uh, based upon race and ethnicity. And this is the time that we live in. And uh, we are still struggling as a nation to become that more perfect union that the founders of our country wrote about uh, and James Madison wrote about in the preamble in the Constitution of the East United States of America. Uh, my organization, the Council on American Islamic Relations Michigan Chapter, we are uh, an organization that primarily deals with Islamophobia, uh, reacting to that, but also uh, to in- secure and ensure the rights of Muslims who reside in the state of Michigan, be they uh, natural-born citizens and that term's being used a lot all of a sudden because of Ted Cruz, right? Natural-born citizen. Um, Natural-born citizens, those who are naturalized citizens, uh, people who are here uh, as legal residents, and those who come here on uh, refugee status or fleeing some sort of international turmoil. So I'll share with you just in the spirit of Dr. King and Dr. King talked about three pernicious evils that need to be addressed in our country being racism poverty and militarism and all of those three are all three of those things in America are connected they cannot be separated as, as a result of our uh, invasion into Iraq based upon false pretenses It opened up the door to Pandora's box, in which there are two different uh, major refugee crises that took place. So first, the Iraqi refugees that fled into Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan after the invasion and the toppling of Saddam Hussein. And then from the turmoil and unrest that was started in the region later on, in which uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq morphed into what we call Daesh or some of you know as ISIS and along with the uh, atrocities of the Al-Assad regime has now led to the greatest refugee crisis in the world since World War II. Blames are Syrian refugees. Our organization for about three years has had a Syrian asylum and TPS project. And we have a 100% success rate. Well, basically, Syrians who had already been in America visiting family members who feared political persecution of being killed by the al-Assad regime or by uh, Daesh filed for temporary protected status that was started under the Obama administration or filed for asylum. And uh, thanks to God, we have a 100% success rate relating to those... Assyrians. Now, when we talk about militarism and those people been pushed into abject poverty, but also racism and racism and xenophobia are, you know, they're like two faces of the same coin. Uh, under the guise of national security, we've had about half the governors of these United States of America who've talked about where well, we need to ban. Syrian refugees coming to the United States of America our country is only allowing a poultry 10,000 And The state of Michigan was supposed to be getting 400 orphans You know we're talking about nine-year-olds through 12 year olds or so Syrians allowed into the state of Michigan there are people who are uh, Raising hay. you know about a bunch of orphans who've lost their mothers and fathers getting into the state of Michigan now uh, they said that these orphans may cause a national security threat by letting them, or, or refugees, causing a national security threat. Now, there's been subtle Islamophobia that we believe will we be pushed back against that has been invoked in keeping Syrian uh, refugees out. First, they say, well, they may, uh, we don't want people coming into the country because there might be another Paris attack because The rhetoric got ginned up after the Paris attack. Uh, Those people who committed those attacks were Belgian and French nationals. It wasn't a Syrian Syrian. There was a single Syrian refugee that was involved in the Paris attacks. This is number one. Okay? Number two, when we look at since 9-11, terrorist attacks that have taken place in the United States of America in which 229 Americans have been killed relating to terrorist attacks, not a single one involved a refugee. Not a single one involved a refugee, right? And if we look at domestic terrorism statistics according to the FBI, go on FBI.gov, right? In the past two decades, 94% of plotted domestic terrorism attacks or those who have committed them have been committed by people 94% 94% committed by people who are not out of normal steps. Go to FBI.gov. I see some people's eyebrows. Not my statistics. These are federal government statistics. They're not even including the ones that aren't called terrorism. You know, Dylan Roof going to the black church, that wasn't even designated domestic terrorism. The Planned Parenthood shooting in Colorado Springs, that was not designated terrorism, even though it appears there have been a clear political motive. So, my point in getting to that even the discussion about, oh, let me get to the third point. For a refugee to get into the United States of America, it takes them almost three years because there's Interpol checks, they have the rest of the United Nations, and the Department of Homeland Security does background checks. And anyone who knows or is familiar with the refugee process absolutely knows this. We are, uh, and that's not to say that it's not 100% uh capacity of stopping someone coming to the country that might do some harm, but the numbers just don't add up. And then also the, the cruel irony in it, which I mentioned before, Syrian refugees who come here or coming here to America, they're actually the people who are running away from the terrorists. They're running away from Daesh. They're not part of Daesh. They have left their homes because their mosque had been blown up. You know, because ninety percent of 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 terrorist victims in the world according to these according to the consortium of terrorism and counterterrorism through the University of Maryland that is commissioned the study commissioned by the State Department in 2013 says about 90% of terrorism victims throughout the world are actually Muslims Muslims are the prime so when people say uh, Daesh or, or ISIS is Islamic. Well, how can they be Islamic when their specialty is bombing mosques and killing Muslims? Like it doesn't even make sense. They've never even attacked. Uh, they don't even attack other countries in the region as much as attack Muslim countries in that part of the world. Uh, so, within saying that, uh, this is the, the the issue that Muslims are dealing with today, and uh, within the framework of Dr. King that, that talked about is that there has been an otherization of Muslims. Islam has been a racialized religion. Our country has always had racial hierarchy, and religion has always been racialized. When Irish first came to America, Irish had their own box that Irish didn't check white. Catholicism was considered a non-white religion in America. Jewish Americans did not have uh, social, political whiteness and fluidity in this country not long ago, and it, it, no Jews and dogs allowed allow signs used to be all throughout this country. I mean, Jewish people couldn't even openly buy property, even here in Oakland County, if you want to go back to the early 1960s, right? But now, for the most part, that issue has been you know, dealt with for Irish and Italians and Polish Americans and Jewish Americans from various eastern European backgrounds Islam has been racialized and considered a non-white religion and the adherence to Islam even if they are white or come from like Albania or Bosnia and have lesser melanin than I do they are socially politically non-white and actually Dr. Akbar Ahmed from American University wrote something about this and there's a video he talked about the the racism that Bosnian refugees faced in St. Louis when they fled Serbian aggression in the 90s uh, it's called a uh, right color, wrong religion. <laughs> Look at them—they're Europeans. The right color, wrong religion. With that, I will uh, stop and let my uh, two co-panelists. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you, very much <laughs> Diane, you now
2: have the floor to address concerns. I think that's going to be a hard act to
1: follow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I can nearly be that eloquent. So, my name is Diane Baird. I work at Lutheran Social Services in Michigan. My office is in Lansing, but we have offices around the state, including nearby in Troy, Detroit, and Ann Arbor. Um, and I'm just going to talk a little bit about who are refugees um, that we work with at LSSM. So, I think it's important to start out with the definition of a refugee. What does refugee mean? We've been hearing that word a lot. Um, So the UN definition of a refugee is a person who's admitted, um, who's unable, so this is our definition, right? Refugees are worldwide, but in the US, someone who's unable or unwilling to return to his country of origin because of past persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution based on race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. So my... Experience over the last 18 years working with refugees has been with a very diverse group of refugees, right? So when I started um, in the 90s working with refugees from Bosnia, working with refugees from Somalia, working with refugees from all over the place, um, I also had a supervisor who had been a refugee from Vietnam, and he had been here in the United States for decades. Um... And I think of different families and different children that I've worked with. I currently work with a refugee foster care program. So we work with kids who need foster families who are coming here because they have no parent and no relative left at the time that they're processed as refugees overseas. And they have no one to be with. So when they arrive in the US, we provide a foster family that provides care for them helps them get enrolled in school, and prepare them for adulthood um, when they transition out. So, but I can think of a Bosnian family where we had a gentleman who, because he married someone from a different religion and a different ethnic group, they were both arrested and taken to the wife's side, right? um, That she was on. And he was forced to walk in front of the army because he belonged to the other ethnic group. And he was a human bullet shield. Mm. Um, And his wife was pregnant at the time. And he didn't meet his daughter until she was seven years old. Mm. She was kept locked in a basement and imprisoned by her own people because she had married someone of another faith and another ethnic group. And when they were welcomed here, him having had two surgeries but needing several more because of the 16 bullet wounds in his body. Um, he was just amazed, right, to be welcomed into Michigan and to have a new home and to be able to have some place to call home where he knew he would be safe and he wouldn't be discriminated because of his faith. I think of kids that I've worked with from Sudan um, that when they came in 2000, they were able. Um, Okay, we'll try a new one (coughs) to be welcomed to a foster family um, and a young man from Iraq who was placed in a foster family nearby in Detroit who didn't move out of his foster dad's home until he became a U.S. citizen purchased his own home at the age of 23 Um, and owns a home in St. Clair Shores and is doing very well these days But we have other youth and families that come from Burma, from Congo, from Syria, and from other places. Um, If we think historically about refugees, we can think of our own ancestors who were refugees. Um, I have small children, so when Thanksgiving came around, they learned this traditional Thanksgiving story, right? Um, About pilgrims fleeing from religious persecution and wanting a safe place. And we see that now with the refugees that are coming we see um, people in our history, such as Albert Einstein. We recently celebrated, some of us celebrated a holiday where we celebrate the birth of someone who was fleeing from persecution, right? Uh, When we read in the Bible the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they went for a census and then Herod ordered, all the baby boys killed because he didn't want to be threatened, and they fled for their lives as refugees. So, I was asked to talk a little bit about what is the process to become a refugee. A refugee flees their conflict in their home country. Um, So if that's a Burmese um, adult or child, they flee maybe to Malaysia or Thailand somewhere, what we call the first country of asylum, so the first place they can get to, whatever's closest, right? Um, for another refugee that might be Jordan, for another that might be Kenya. Um, And then they get processed, if they're lucky. Many refugees never get processed by the United Nations and never get identified because they live in a city and they find a job and they work under the radar and they do what they have to do to survive and to have food to feed their family. Less than 1% of all refugees identified across the world are able to be resettled. And the US isn't the only country that takes refugees. That's one of the things we don't know sometimes. Um, Refugees go to Sweden. Um, I had a Somali youth that came and lived um, in Lansing, and her boyfriend was resettled in Ireland. And I had a Sudanese youth who had a sibling in Australia. Um, So refugees are resettled all over the place. Before processing to the U.S., if someone's referred, it takes 18 to 24 months. I have met young people that have waited 10 years to be processed. They left their homes at the age of six, right? Fled on foot to another country, lost their family along the way. Something happened there, fled on foot back to another country, fled on foot to another country before they ended up in a refugee camp for 10 years before they actually came to the U.S., days before their 17th birthday. That... um, Security screening that Dow talked a little bit about includes the US making an assessment of a family, biometrics, an iris scan, security screenings not just by Homeland Security but by the FBI, the CIA, the State Department, counterterrorism task forces. And during a recent presentation by the State Department here in Michigan, we had a representative from the State Department come in October and she said, entities we don't even name also do screenings. And I was like, that kind of freaks me out. <laughs> um, if you can't name it, why are you telling me to exist? Um, but if someone is a proof of someone, if someone gets through all of that process, we get contacted, right? So I get a name, and I get a two-page or a ten-page document telling me, we have a 16-year-old girl from the Congo. She was beaten and raped. Her parents were killed in front of her and she has no family left. And we need a foster family for her. And they tell me about her medical history, some of the challenges because of what she's been through. And then I look for a foster family. And when I find one, I send a back saying, yes, we have a home for this child. But there's a very thorough process where they go through with the State Department each week and say, which place can best serve this family? And every family is matched across the country. If they have family in a region, they will go to that region, right, to be there in their family. But otherwise, who can best serve this refugee? And they would go there. LSSM serves families that are coming as refugees as well as children that have no parents. Um, So either way, we serve this, we serve refugees. And when they get here, we help welcome them and integrate them into their new community. So I asked my state counterpart Um, how many refugees come to Michigan and where do they go? And so he provided me these numbers, so this is for the fiscal year 2015. So you can see Oakland, Macomb, and Wayne County um, have the most, you also have the most population of anyone across the state, right? In Oakland, Wayne, and Macomb Counties. Um, Lansing and Grand Rapids, so a little over 600 in Lansing, a little over 700 in Grand Rapids, a little over 100 in Battle Creek, Washtenaw County, 77, and other. So a few people that lived in other counties. My guess is there are probably counties that are close to those major counties, right? But someone that lived just across the border. Like if I'm in Ingham County in Lansing, I might place a refugee in Eaton County, which is just across the street, right? So they're probably in these same regions. Um, So those are the numbers for families that are coming or adults that are coming. unaccompanied children that are coming without parents and placed in foster care um, we have about 300 or 350 kids in care every day in the state of Michigan um, but we have less than 50 new kids a year so kids receive care up until they turn 18 to 21 so between 18 and 21 the program is voluntary most of our kids choose to stay in the program um, but by age 21 they age out of our foster care program, and that's per our state law. So who are the refugees in Southeast Michigan? I don't have the official numbers for every program. There are other agencies and organizations in this region that work with refugees, but I do have the LSSM numbers. So for LSSM, you can see our numbers for the last several years. LSSM resettled 556 refugees in FY15 into Southeast Michigan. And in 2016, we're anticipating 850. That number may or may not go up, depending on what happens each year. We can't really predict exactly how many refugees are gonna come, but that's what's approved at the moment. And you can see um, most of those refugees that were resettled by LSSM in the last year were from Iraq. Um, I know the blues are close in color, but the slightly darker, the 18% pie piece is the Syria piece and other is the light blue. For refugees when they come, um, we provide many services, so adult resettlement is really focused on helping finding someone housing, getting them their first job, and getting them integrated. The vast majority of refugees are employed within 180 days of arrival. So, I can't even imagine that, right? Being in another country not knowing how to get around not having a driver's license when I show up, right? Getting enrolled in school, facing all sorts of new things to learn, and being employed within 180 days. It's amazing. Um, for our refugee kids, we find a foster family before they arrive, and then we provide intensive case management services and mentoring and independent living skills classes and those things. Most of our kids are self-sufficient before they leave, I have to say most of our youth um, between age 18 and 21 are employed and are either going to high school or going to community college. Refugees are resilient. Refugees are resourceful. Refugees are multilingual. We talk about English as a second language, but just to know, many, many refugees are learning their third, fourth, or fifth language when they're learning English. They're not learning their second language. they put me to shame, right? My um, mediocre Spanish skills don't compare um, with the amount of learning um, that our refugees have done when they come. They're innovative. It's been shown that for each refugee or immigrant that comes to the US, 2.6 jobs are created. And refugees are hard workers. I mentioned how quickly most of them are employed. Um, There are some myths I have a little MythBuster on the sheet, so if anybody wants the orange, goldenrod sheet over there, I have some MythBusters. Um, but we are not taking more refugees now than ever before. We're actually doing less than our share. Um, the countries of Jordan and Lebanon s- serve proportionately a much, much higher share of the burden of refugees um, internationally. This year, we're anticipating approximately 80,000 refugees. The ceiling is 85,000, but we don't know that we're gonna make it to that many. Um, In 1980, we took over 200,000 refugees, so we're doing less than half of what we have done historically. Um, Refugees are a very diverse group. This is a picture with permission of one of my foster families and some of the youth in our program attending church together and refugees are one of the most highly screened groups. We've talked about security cleans. There's a great um, infographic on whitehouse.gov that talks about the whole process that refugees go through. Um, but they go through much more screening than anyone else that enters the US. Um, it would be much easier for someone to come on a visitor's visa, an employment visa, or some other way, if they wanted to come here for any um, purpose that was other than desperately seeking safety. And there are ways to be involved if someone wants to help. So, um, providing a warm welcome to a refugee family, helping them practice English, providing employment opportunities or helping to job coach someone, um, housing or funds. I I put up Mahalo, my colleague at our Troy office, her information, and there's a flyer um, with these things listed from her office. Um, And if someone would like to become a foster parent, a mentor, a tutor, or somehow help a child who is here with no parent or adult relative to care for them, um, we urgently need that kind of help. In December, we had an email with 58 children who had no homes. And we have found homes for four of them so far. Um, So we urgently need more foster families to help with children that have no one to take care of them. There is a sibling group of four Afghani children, ages nine to 15, who have been waiting for six months with no family to take them. So, There's information and a brochure for my office if anybody is interested in helping with that as well. Thank you. Thank you, Diane.
0: <laughs> and last but not least, Raquel, you now have the floor to share with us about Global Detroit. Great. Um, so usually when we talk about Global Detroit, um, as she mentioned, every immigrant, whether they're asylum refugee, um, or just you know, immigrating to the country, um, more jobs are produced. And so, um, Steve DeBachman, who's our director, started to see a trend. He was a state rep in Southwest Detroit in District 6. And um, he was commissioned in 2009 to do a study on, you know, why some um, areas of Detroit are denser and wh- why there's you know, different areas in Detroit and why they look this way. So Global Detroit was actually a study, um, and it was released um, a year and a half later, in about about late 2010, with a lot of recommendations. And so, if Steve Tobacman were here, he could run down all the different numbers and statistics as to what we are finding. Um, But what I, um, and if you are interested in that kind of information, my email's on this and I've got cards here. What i like to talk about is how I came to this work and what I'm personally learning um, in the field uh, in a couple of different communities. So I worked at a community college for more than 15 years and um, in downtown Detroit, and I was noticing that as a Spanish speaker, I wasn't coming across lots of people who spoke Spanish. And literally, two miles away, is um, a Latino community. And I worked so many hours, I was actually not touching them at all, or, you know, actually I wasn't talking to them at all. And so I decided to make a transition and uh, started uh, working as an organizer and knocking on doors. And I was knocking on doors around voter registration, some other issues, immigration. We were trying to collect information as to how ICE was acting in the community and some other needs. And I was, as I was knocking on doors and talking to usually moms at schools, um, I was noticing, you know, um, I'd say, hey, I'm here to do uh, a rights presentation. And they would say to me, but I need to know how to start a business, or I don't know how to get across town, or I can't communicate with my child's teacher. You know, I have this question about... Um, you know, for example, a person is naturalized, but they speak mostly Spanish. You know, there's this assumption that if you hear another language, they must just, you know, they're not a U.S. citizen. That's not necessarily true. There's a lot of assumptions about other language speakers. And I started to realize in my work, I just don't know anything about my own community. Like, I, I, there's a certain sort of group I hang out with, and there was so much at the door and um, I started asking lots of questions and organizing around different issues and you know, there was home issues. There's a lot of abuse, um, for example, there's a lot of houses that are sold, uh, sold, sold on land contract to several people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and taken and given and sold and like these contracts that aren't worth anything and so I'm like, they need legal services beyond immigration. How do they buy a house if it's in foreclosure and they have the first right of refusal? I don't know anything about that. So, I was learning lots of things in lots of different areas and bringing lots of different experts into the community um, where people didn't speak English at all. <coughs> and that's how I found my way to Global Detroit. Um, you know, they were interested in some of the work I was doing. Um, I feel like we have many, many partners in immigration and rights. And, you know, I just felt like that um, I wanted to work in a more holistic world where. I could ask lots of different questions and and ask. And uh, I've have t- gone into city like the city hall, like to, to you know, get a deed, to listen to how that works, to see how people are sent into weird areas and how nothing is translated. Um, so my work is really about uncovering. When she talks about integration, what does that mean? You know, to uh, it could mean. So many different things to so many different people. Uh, And so, a lot of my work is um, diving in deep, for example, with the land bank, um, following a family as they try to buy a house. It's hard for an English speaker who's born here, it's definitely hard for a Spanish speaker. Um, You know, just how do you get a deed? How do you record uh, land? How do you start a business? Um, and so I'm just learning all this information, and then what we try to do is duplicate in other communities, or we go to community leaders and say, Let us put together a checklist of what we're learning. Let's see what, what your group is saying. Is this also the same? Is it not the same? Uh, and we find that needs are different. Um, communities are different. We're working with um, a lot of Bengalis in Hamtramck, Detroit, um, in town. And what we do in southwest Detroit with um, lots of groups of people. Um, it's you know because of their culture they do it you know the men and the women are usually separate so there's parallel systems parallel learning you know we need women to teach all of the content that we're um, teaching it, uh, to the men and um, so it's it's a really sort of vibrant work um, and it's really brought me um, a lot of joy um, a, lo- a lot of confusion and pain too because we see that. Um, People just don't have access to city systems, banking, they're underbanked, they're um, taken advantage of, um, they often, um, you know, they say poverty is really expensive because you're cashing your checks on the, cor- in the corner and it's 25% or something like that to cash a check. So we know that um, when people don't have access to systems like this, that they're paying um, a lot of money and they're not able to support... The community. so I'll give you uh, I have lots of examples. Um, my, one of my friends bought a house um, in, in the auction. she's a single mom and she was paying like twelve hundred dollars with you know rent and bills and you know transporting her daughters. and so I was like, let's buy this house and I say let's, but she bought it. we were holding hands and we dove off the, the cliff together and we were both really scared and I'm like, what have I done? I've just convinced this woman to spend five thousand dollars on a house and um, but now she's got a rent her. And they paid, you know, like $700, and now she's got income. So her bill went from $1,200 to $500. Um, and now, you know, we're trying to convince her to incorporate, so that she she's really great at painting, and she's like she does a lot, lot about sort of home home rehab. And I'm thinking, you could teach other women to do this. We could figure out a system for you to get paid to do this. And how about how many other single moms are out there who are just Suffering, like just trying to make ends meet. So, we're trying to, we're right now, working on a profile. Um, typical media doesn't work in these sensitive communities. Um, you know, we do flyers at churches, we talk to community leaders, we go to the schools. We can do this for five or six months and still not touch lots of people. So, we're canvassing, knocking on doors, trying to replicate systems, testing the systems. <coughs> Um, and then we um, go to the Bangla town, and we're talking to a wonderful woman who's been working with the women of, Bang- of Bangla town, um, who come in and they're gardening, and so we're talking about, she's writing a grant, we're writing a grant with her, how can we create products that these ladies can sell? How do we test, you know, how do we create something that they're comfortable with, um, you know that. What, what, what might they want to do? And so we're um, trying to provide access and support. We translate all of our materials. Um, we ask them what they want. A lot of what we do in opportunity neighborhoods is that it has to be community-led, community-driven, and designed. We don't come in with a prescription because it doesn't work. We see that, for example, our work in Brightmoor... Um, you know, the African Caribbean community, whole different community. Um, and then you break them out into different, you know, different countries, different you know, so it's really about deep listening and um, like slow food, lots of slow listening and lots of slow development. You know, and um and, and you know, sharing lots of food and I knock on doors and I, I get to work and I'm like, it's four hours. I'm like, there's no way you can just conduct business. You're like, How are you kids? How's that other thing that's going on? And I have to honor that that time and that culture and that person. Um, it's really taught me to slow down and honor myself. Like, I am who I am. I'm exactly what I'm supposed to be with this person and not want them to be different. Um, many times integration is about bringing them in and making them like us. And I, I also want to share that in my learning in Southwest Detroit, if you drive from the beginning of Werner to where it ends and it, you know by Dick's mm-hmm. highway, you will see that every two miles, the, the corridor is replicated. You have a grocery store, stores, you know, shoe store. You've got CVS or some sort of pharmacy. You've got a lot of information. Um, just wave me down when my time is I know we've all been doing Just go like this. Okay. And what we've found is that when people come and they don't speak English, um, their radius is about two miles. So they're walking, they're not driving. And they might not have a license. They may not feel comfortable. So they're able to support <coughs> five or six restaurants, a grocery store, a shoe store. So when they come, instead of saying, you need to change and learn and be like us, we should say, wow, we've got about two years where they can help develop this community. You see it in Hamtramck. you see it in Southwest Detroit. I think there's a, a little corridor on Seven Mile. We should say, be who you need to be. We recognize what it means to the stores in your neighborhood. And so we're, we're documenting this. and. and Reaching it to people, like we want them to integrate at their own speed. You know, like we don't, we shouldn't want them to to come in and, um, you know, not speak their language and and not be who they are. And um, so it's been really, really great. Um, I when I when I have tours, I'm like I show them the the footprint. Every two miles, check it out. You know, take this back to Cleveland or Dayton or wherever you're working. So a lot of our learning. Um, we document and we, we share, but we recognize that you know the community in Southwest is not the community in Cleveland or in New Hampshire, and, and you know we try to share what we're learning, but we also know that it's not prescriptive. It's about really listening to each individual community. Um, it's been really wonderful, um, but it is uh, uh, very conflicting because um, right now you know we were making such headway with the immigration reform dialogue. Until last year, and we were even hopeful. Um, and the rhetoric that is out right now in the community is, has really driven lots of people back into the shadows. And so, a lot of people who are coming out and engaging, and you know, one of the the uh, tenants that uh, under which we work is civic engagement. So, you know, whether you're immi- or an immigrant, international student or undocumented, we want you to engage and come to meetings, and you know, um, we want you in the school. You know. Um, Parent committee and all these different things, and we've seen people go back into the shadows. And so, almost all of the work that we're doing um, just has like this sort of uh, pallor to it, and uh, it's just really weighted. And uh, it's really disappointing to see. I watch all the debates like five times. And I, it's just disappointing to see where we are right now. It seems like we've taken like a really, really, really big step backwards. And one of the things I would ask of everybody here is be vocal and tell people, no, we don't think this way. Because, you know, for some reason, some people are louder than others. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, usually they're mad. And, I don't know, they don't leave their house. I have no idea. But, um, and so I, I tend to... Um, try to be as vocal but in a loving way because, you know, don't want to replicate that kind of um, exclusion or anger or um, right or wrongness and um, I've got a, a couple of friends that really don't know anything about this word, and we're going to hopefully this summer um, work in Bangla in Bangal- town and I, I always tell people you know, you meet someone face to face and, you know, um, I'm probably preaching to the choir but it's really hard to unlearn it and to go back and be like, um, uh, I know ignorant about our community or angry about a community, and so you know we've got to just be really vocal in that, in the face of what's happening. So,
1: yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to um, ask you to take a minute, jot down any questions that you have
2: for our three speakers, and I'm going to ask my um, young adults. We're here passing out the note cards. If you can just raise your hand if you have a card um, for any questions, and they'll go around and
0: collect them. Thank you. Great job, all. Of
2: you.